0: Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.
1: Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 106, Dr. James Spiegel on Unbelief and Belief in the Bible. You know, one of the most satisfying things in life is when you work really hard on something and other people realize fully what you're trying to do and appreciate the value of it. I wanted to share with you three very recent reviews. They're all five-star reviews from the U.S. iTunes store. The first is by a user named Rob WBJ. He says, quote, Professor Tuggy can talk philosophy with the scholars, question theologians sympathetically, search out historical viewpoints, and usually make it all understandable but logically grounded. And despite the variety of subjects and viewpoints, there is often a solid attempt to look at the issue from a biblical, especially New Testament, perspective. Occasionally the subject does not appeal to me, but many discussions I have listened to more than once. Highly recommend it if you would like to think biblically and approach that goal logically. End quote. And a user named Marcus E.B. says, quote, This podcast isn't just a series of sermons like most Christian podcasts I know of. This is in-depth stuff about trying to understand how God has revealed himself to us in Scripture. Dale does a good job of translating all the technical jargon into everyday language so that us common folk can understand the conversation as well. End quote. And a user named Odd in the Truth has an even more in-depth review. He or she says, quote, Trinities is one of the few Christian podcasts that doesn't flatten out Scripture to accommodate one particular theological tribe. I believe A, so make Bible fit into Constellation of A. Trinities tries to take Scripture for what it says, in all its relevant contexts, and arrive at reasonably correct beliefs. This is something I always appreciate. God and His revelation through Scripture always come out more interesting, complex, and untamed on this approach. What also sets trinities apart is the quality of the guests' discussions and its philosophical frame of reference. Dale interviews the folks you should have heard of but probably haven't. Dr. William Hasker, Dr. William Valicella, Dr. Larry Hurtado, and Dr. Michael Heiser. And woven into each discussion is the search for philosophical consistency. The Christian faith is rational. It has warrant. It is a justified belief. Because of this approach, you will grow. Grow not only in your knowledge, but in your appreciation of the philosophical complexities of God's revelation, scripture, and nature. Yet you will also be challenged, challenged to be intellectually honest about the reasons you believe certain things. For these reasons, Trinity's is a must-listen for me, every week. Two cautions, this podcast requires some brain power, some effort. And be aware that Dale holds to some form of Unitarianism, something I disagree with. However, I am grateful that he has plenty of guests that also disagree with him, including the four listed above. End quote. Folks, thanks so much for those reviews. This podcast has a loyal following, but it's a pretty small following, and I think because it doesn't fit in with fashionable concerns and approaches and sort of attitude, it's been slower to grow. But these kind of reviews do help to get the word out and help other people to find this podcast. So I really appreciate it. Dr. James Spiegel is professor of philosophy and religion at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. He earned his PhD in philosophy from Michigan State University in 1993, and he works in the areas of ethics and philosophy of religion. The author of many scholarly and popular articles and book chapters, his books include Hypocrisy, Moral Fraud, and Other Vices, 1999, How to Be Good in a World Gone Bad, Living a Life of Christian Virtue, 2004, and The Love of Wisdom, A Christian Introduction to Philosophy, co-authored with Stephen B. Cowan, 2009. He also blogs with his wife Amy at wisdomandfollyblog.com. He's the only philosopher I know who co-blogs with their spouse. He's also the only philosopher I know who has published articles on why human flatulence is funny. (laughs) Last week we talked about the main thesis of his book, The Making of an Atheist. In this interview, we'll focus more on some of the relevant, famous passages in the Bible, and also the end of Dr. Spiegel's book, where he mentions the cognitive benefits of belief in God. Dr. Spiegel, welcome back to the Trinity's podcast. Thanks. Dr. Spiegel, when discussing atheism, many people quote this famous passage from the 14th Psalm.
2: Fools say in their hearts there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on humankind to see if there are any who are wise, who seek after God. They have all gone astray. They are all alike, perverse. There is no one who does good. No, not one.
1: Dr. Spiegel, some people read this as saying that all atheists are idiots. Do you think that that's what it means?
0: No, in fact, I don't take that verse... To be saying that that all atheists are morally egregious or especially immoral, I think it's rather the claim is the other way around. The fool, someone who's morally dense, says in his heart there is no God. It's It's a kind of affirmation of the idea that when you live foolishly, it's as if, it's at least as if you're declaring there is no God. It's more of a statement about people who act foolishly than about atheists being immoral. So that's why I don't you know, hinge anything on that thesis in, in my book. Having said that, I do think it points up some important ideas about the relationship between the reality of God and ethics. I do believe you can't really sustain an ethics without God. I mean, that's a different discussion, but I think it, that passage actually speaks to something more in that territory than a diagnosis of atheism.
1: I wonder if there's an analogy here with that one parable that Jesus gives where the owner of the vineyard leaves people in charge and then goes away and they start to run amok and they abuse whoever the owner sends them. And, you know, maybe they say in their hearts the owner's never coming back, but they don't even really believe that. I wonder if the psalmist here just kind of means... You come, oh, there's no God, let's just do what we want. But they may actually, you know, hedge their bets, or they may actually believe that. They're just kind of choosing to put it out of their mind. Which is to say, I'm not sure it's even really about
0: atheism. Yeah. It could be um, a sort of as-if kind of analysis, that you mm-hmm. know, you're acting foolishly, you're acting as if there is no God, which, I mean, Jonathan Edwards says that about all human sin, that every human sin is a a practical disbelief in the omniscience of god
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah and dr Rouser points out that it seems to be a denunciation of the human race and not specifically atheists too which i think that's right i can't imagine that atheism in the sense of naturalistic atheism was a really serious concern in those times Mm. There might have been people who didn't believe in a perfect being or didn't believe in a creator, but I would think that would not be most people and not be something they would be much worried about. Whereas in, in these latter days, I think to a large extent, Darwin has made the world safe for atheism, and now it doesn't seem ridiculous. It's become a majority view.
0: Yeah, but at least in the West, and I guess it would be true of the, globally then. You know, the 20th century seems to be a unique epic for atheism and i do think darwinism certain other factors have played a significant role in that
1: yeah what did i say a majority view i don't mean among humans generally but among a certain educated elite yeah they just are going to assume a naturalistic view in in many contexts
0: sure yeah but i i do believe and i you'd probably agree that there always have been atheists um Mm-hmm. You know, it probably just wasn't as, as common I, for a variety of reasons. I have a theory about Judas Iscariot that he may have been an atheist. That's a conversation for another time, but <laughs> it's a hypothesis I have.
1: Dr. Spiegel, the Apostle Paul, in a couple of famous passages, seems to paint a really dark picture of the Gentiles, that is, of the nations or cultures of the world who have not had the benefits of special divine revelation. So, in Romans 1, he says,
3: For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he has made. So they are without excuse, for though they knew God, but did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. And their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And they exchanged the glory of the immortal gods for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And in Romans 2, he goes on to say, When the Gentiles sin, they will be destroyed, even though they never had God's written law. And the Jews who would have God's law will be judged by that law when they fail to obey it. For merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It is obeying the law that makes us right in his sight. Even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life.
1: In his letter to the Ephesians in the fourth chapter, and this is another passage that you discuss in your book, The Making of an Atheist. Paul says
3: with the Lord's authority, I say this live no longer as the Gentiles do for they are hopelessly confused. Their minds are full of darkness. They wander far from the life God gives because they have closed their minds and hardened their hearts against him. They have no sense of shame. They live for lustful pleasure and eagerly practice every kind of impurity but that isn't what you learned about Christ. Since you have heard about Jesus and have learned the truth that comes from him, throw off your old sinful nature and your former way of life, which is corrupted by lust and deception. Instead, let the Spirit renew your thoughts and attitudes. Put on your new nature created to be like God, truly righteous and holy.
1: Dr. Spiegel, these critiques are very dark. <laughs> they, are, they are mentally messed up. Minds are dark, hearts against God, shameless, in love with sin, basically. In your view, do these critiques show that atheists are not worth arguing with? They, look, they don't even know why they're atheists. They're just going to waste our time with justifications that they've made up after the fact for their unbelief. Would you draw that consequence from these texts?
0: I do think it's a waste of time to argue with some people, but not with others. Sometimes you have to get in the conversation first to know. And the reason I can't just paint with a broad brush or universalize that whole category is that the Holy Spirit is working in ways that often we can't anticipate or see. And, you know, Jesus says that Holy Spirit is like wind, you don't know where it's coming from or where it's going. And you have people like C.S. Lewis and other people who report that you know they were persuaded by evidences, reading that they were doing, arguments that they were encountering. And then they came to believe as a result of that. I, I think the Holy Spirit can use all sorts of things, personal experiences, pains, pleasures, joys, sorrows, and rational arguments. <laughs> to pave the way or open the door of one's mind and heart. So, um, no, I would never discourage, um, you know, as a, just a universal prohibition or piece of advice, you know, conversation, dialogue with people, whatever their beliefs. But it is a matter of, of wisdom, I think, to see when your conversation is not going to take you anywhere. Where the proverbial pearls are being cast before a swine,
1: it strikes me that Paul is talking in very general terms here and, you know, not theorizing in the sense that a theologian or philosopher theorizes or a scientist theorizes. And when you're not in precise theoretical mode, you'll, we, we say a lot of assertions that are just generally true, even though they have plenty of exceptions. So we might say stuff like Americans love sports, which surely is true of America as a whole but you can find plenty of people who just hate sports or totally uninterested. And so, don't we meet some atheists who don't seem like they're particularly trying to live just for pleasure, who aren't shameless and uh maybe even seem like they're kind of seeking after God rather than just being hard and, you know, get away from me. I don't want anything to do with that.
0: Yeah, I think that's true. But that is not to say that there isn't some suppression of the truth. And I think that the end of verse 20 in Romans 1 is really hard to get around uh, in terms of people who challenge the rebellion thesis when, well, just all of verse 20 when Paul says that since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that men are without excuse. And in other translations, no one has an excuse that seems to be universal he's made it plain to us and and then yeah in Romans 2 the, the the law of god is written on our hearts and so if that applies to everybody then yes even the person who's very morally decent in in, in nearly every respect a good mother or father good citizen good friend even he or she, who has an otherwise decent moral life, though can still be in rebellion in terms of pride and arrogance and inordinate desire for moral autonomy, those are vices as well. So not as you know, they're not as uh, dramatic or theatrical as some of the things that Paul's referring to there in Romans one, but they are impediments to proper belief about God all the same.
1: So, Dr. Spiegel, when you look at Ephesians chapter 4, there it would seem that it's got to be a general statement because, you know, hopelessly confused, minds full of darkness, hearts against him, no sense of shame, practice every kind of impurity. But we can find exceptions to that. But you, you feel like there is a much more universal claim about evidence and the law being written on people's hearts in Romans 1 and 2 that shows that it's not purely a collective denunciation of the culture generally, but it is actually something that applies to every single human.
0: Yeah, I think so. And I do think that there is a certain darkening of every human being's understanding just by virtue of our being fallen, and that includes Christians as well, the most redeemed and sanctified Christian, however morally mature, Paul himself, right, at the height of his sanctification, uh, as he was writing some of the words of scripture, I think he was darkened in his understanding to some degree, as we all are. And so long as we're in this mortal coil and we still have a sinful nature, it's there. There are just different manifestations, and atheists provide one of those manifestations. But in some cases, yes, it's... it's especially dramatic. And maybe the most extreme cases are, you know, where someone doesn't even seem to be able to distinguish between basic right and wrong. And even when they're not an atheist, you know, you can have people who are (laughs) religious zealots who seem blind to their own hypocrisy and and do outrageously immoral things. So that's a point I like to emphasize, is to make clear to atheists who, are appalled at my thesis thinking I'm suggesting that atheists are less moral than theists or that all atheists are extremely debauched, my thesis does not imply that at all. It's simply saying that for the person who rejects God, there are volitional and moral dimensions that explain that, that go beyond a simple review of the evidence.
1: So if your thesis is right that there's evidence that's universally available, it's enough evidence where one ought to believe in God or at least pursue God in some way, then it it looks like that atheists generally or universally are culpable for their atheism. They're culpable for their non-belief.
0: That's correct.
1: And now do you think that that is, is a worse sin generally than if someone, if I ask somebody, you know, what what do you think is a sin? They're going to say, you know, raping, murdering, stealing, lying, being cruel, lacking compassion. They're going to say all that stuff. Is is atheism a worse sin than those, in your view?
0: In terms of degrees of severity of sin, you know, there are a number of different indices we could use to measure that. Um, if I might isolate one, which re- with regard to the degree of negative consequences in terms of one's belief system, then yes, I would say it's it's one of the worst sins, or maybe the worst sin one could be guilty of, you know, just to isolate that particular measure because in terms of your beliefs, the rest of things that you believe about morality and, and so on is going to be impacted by that. But certainly, according to other measures, we could you know, identify all sorts of other sins that are far worse, you know, in terms of direct effect on other people. It's hard to beat murder and rape when it comes to those measures. But in terms of overall impact on one's worldview and then potentially other aspects of their personal life, yeah, I think it's a pretty severe issue.
1: There are some atheists I'm sure we both know people like this who, even though they're definitely atheists, whether they're naturalists or if they're Buddhists or something, they are still very concerned about right and wrong. And they clearly are moral realists who are concerned about fairness and justice and compassion and keeping one's promises and taking care of one's family and, and most of the things that Christians are concerned with, but nothing with respect to God, of course, because they don't believe in God, obviously these atheists haven't drawn a consequence that there's no right and wrong, or that behavior and good behavior aren't important based on their atheism. What do you mean when you mention consequences of atheism in terms of their other beliefs?
0: Yeah, what I mean is that given the rejection of God, there is a loss of any adequate foundation for ethics, and for justifying one's belief in moral absolutes and so one risks at the least a a negative cascading effect upon any number of moral beliefs that they might hold such that there really is no telling where they might land in terms of what they finally believe about right and wrong now you say that there are plenty of atheists who affirm all sorts of good values and I agree and they live morally upright lives and yes that's undeniable but I I regard that, and I think the overall biblical witness would invite us to see this as borrowed capital, that uh, although they don't see it this way, they're retaining of values of respect for people and valuing human life and other moral verities. To that extent, they really are clinging to Judeo-Christian values. A naturalistic, atheistic worldview cannot sustain these things. So they must be essentially borrowing these values from a theistic worldview. And I think this happens more often than not. You know, when you find atheists who, are, who do live well uh, in terms of their moral conduct, in spite of their lack of belief in God, it, it, if you ask them how they justify it, then of course they have a story. And if they're you know, philosophically astute, then, you know, they'll talk about their, their Kantianism or their utilitarianism approach or virtue ethic or or whatever it is, but it's interesting to note that Aristotle, Mill, Kant, all of these, you know, (laughs) fathers of these great moral traditions, all recognized in one way or another, the reality of God and in fact the importance of theism to sustain those particular ethics.
1: So I know it's it's beyond the scope of this interview, but in your view, is is there a resource you would recommend where you think someone effectively makes the case that If you're an atheist, you can't be a moral realist?
0: Yeah, there are a couple of resources I'd recommend. One is John Hare, The Moral Gap. Another book is entitled, Is Goodness Without God Good Enough? And it's a nice collection of uh, essays by people on both sides of that fence, published by Roman and Littlefield, I don't know, maybe eight years ago. And you have contributions from Louise Antony, William Lane Craig, John Hare, uh, Stephen Lehman, Walter Sinnott Armstrong, Richard Swinburne. So some would say you need God, others, in some cases, atheists would say no. It's an excellent discussion. But I'm in agreement with William Lane Craig and Lehman in particular in maintaining that the reality of moral truth powerfully points to or presupposes the existence of God and that you can't sustain ethics without theism.
1: Dr. Spiegel, have you ever been an atheist yourself?
0: Not that I recall, though I had, uh, you know, one friend that knew me back in the days of uh, before my Christian conversion, who said that when he met me, I was an agnostic. So uh, my short answer to that is is no, but you know, maybe I was indeed agnostic.
1: Now, some agnostics would say that they're agnostic because they see conflicting evidence for and against the existence of God. And some agnostics, I think, just don't think there's enough evidence to have them form a belief either way. I suspect in light of our conversation today and last week that you would say that the explanation for your being an agnostic wasn't that the arguments that you'd seen weren't compelling enough or something like that. But was in terms of your own avoidance of God or uh, love of your mm-hmm. own sin? Is that what you would say about your former self?
0: I would, yeah. I certainly would not have liked the idea that I would be accountable to God for all of my thoughts, words, and deeds. There was a sort of resistance in me you know, to all things religious that, that smacked of that though at the time, if someone had started a discussion with me about these things, I would have had some sort of response that would encourage skepticism. You know, what reason do we have to believe this or that? So I would have cloaked it in uh, more or less philosophical dismissal, but it, there really was a, a will to avoid any kind of ultimate accountability.
1: Now, were you still not a Christian as a philosophy student then?
0: No, and I was a very young man. I mean, I was teenager when i converted but by the time i went to college i was i was a christian and um didn't discover philosophical studies until i was in college so no i i was never in a that agnostic state while studying philosophy i came to philosophical studies out of a kind of desire to understand my faith as well as just the broader Human conversation right down through history a bit better, a lot better. So, I guess I was like uh, Augustine or Anselm, you know, faith seeking understanding.
1: So, as far as you remember, was it just kind of a knee jerk skepticism, like, how do you know that? How do you know that? Was it that sort of stance that you would take toward any claims about God? Sure.
0: Yeah. It would have been more unschooled, (laughs) but certainly an automatic. Genuflecting kind of response. If I felt anybody was, you know, wanting to get me to be religious, a knee-jerk reaction. i <laughs> uh, just sort of an automatic self-defense mechanism. You know, somebody's bringing up God or evidence for God or Christianity. You know, I would perceive that as a kind of threat because now it's going to require certain things from me in terms of my life and conduct and the life I was living. I certainly didn't want anybody intruding on my promiscuity and drug use, to be specific.
1: Dr. Spiegel, many people are going to wonder then, how did you become a Christian?
0: Well, it was a convergence of a, no- a number of uh, factors, influences, but i could give you the short story. I had a couple of friends in high school that showed a lot of love and concern for me, and I knew they were both Christians. and. You know, they'd share certain things with me, but they wouldn't. They were very polite, and they wouldn't hit me over the head with anything. And while my indulgence in and very destructive lifestyle was bringing me to a point of, I guess, desperation, I began to take more seriously the things they were saying. And it was, you know, in in that context that I I came to faith. And it took something to break my will, and I think it's consistent with the thesis of my book. You know that. My rejection of God was volitional, therefore, you know, piling evidences on me or giving me a good rational case for the faith wasn't going to do it. I had to, had to have my will brought up against, you know, something difficult, which given my desperate state at the time, that's definitely what happened. And so I guess you could say the Holy Spirit opened my heart to the truth of God in the context of that frustration and, and desperation
1: and so that caused you to really investigate christianity
0: it did i had experimented with so many mind altering chemicals that when um i was presented with this idea of calling upon god and asking him to come into my life forgive my sin and you know give me his spirit as i call out to christ i thought this is an interesting experiment So I, I took it as a, a kind of hypothesis that I, that I could test, frankly. I thought, well, what the heck? <laughs> and so I did that. It's basically a sinner's prayer. Not really fully believing what I was praying. I, I don't know how much I really believed it. But I did believe that if I tried to believe it and it was true, that something good might happen. Does that make sense?
1: interesting so you were going on on hope as much as any kind of firm belief or maybe it was very weak and faltering belief
0: huh yeah that's good and I, I never thought about it in such fundamental terms as as hope but yeah and i remember praying that prayer i was driving my car and looking down at this, this piece of paper this this prayer was written on and uh i remember when i finished that prayer something happened in me. I mean, it was, uh, ah, it felt just physiological. I mean, it felt like physical that something, a weight had been lifted. It's It's a cliche, but it really did feel like that, that something that was oppressing me was gone. And I was surprised at it. I did not expect that. And then and that was really the beginning, you know, and there were a number of dips and valleys and and then um rises in the in the story but um that was really the launching point and it was it was remarkable just from a my a personal psychological standpoint I, you know was, I still remember it so vividly You might say that uh devotional experiment paid off, and I, that's something that I would. Recommend to anyone who is agnostic, or you know, even bona fide hardcore atheist, anybody who's who's not a theist, try experimenting with this and calling out as sincerely as you can to the God who might be there. There's a article that was published in, I think it was the International Journal for Philosophy of Religion, by uh, written by a guy named Tim Mawson. He's a, a philosophy. Uh, scholar in the UK, the essay, what's it entitled? Something like on praying uh, that one would no longer be an atheist, something like that. (laughs) And he defends this idea that this is a reasonable thing to do, to, to pray that one would no longer be an atheist, praying that about oneself, because the consequences and the implications Of atheism are so great if theism is true that uh, you know of a negative you know nature for the person who does not believe it's rational to pray that one would stop being an atheist I think that's what it's called I'm praying to stop being an atheist so it's worth trying if God is there in your at least your desire to find the truth of God if it's there at least if that's sincere then, you know, we can expect God, at least eventually, to answer that, you know, by making some sort of impact on the, on the mind of the unbeliever. So I'd, I'd recommend that. I think that's right. Praying to the God who might be there.
1: Dr. Spiegel, at the end of your book, The Making of an Atheist, you discuss the cognitive benefits of belief in God, which includes the right to complain to God and the privilege of thanking God. And you give examples of complaining and thanking prayers in the Psalms, in the Bible. So in Psalm 13,
2: How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I bear pain in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep the sleep of death, and my enemy will say, I have prevailed. But I trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord, because he has dealt bountifully with me.
1: And then in the famous 8th Psalm.
2: O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth! When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have established, what are human beings that you are mindful of them, mortals that you care for them? Yet you have made them a little lower than the gods, and crowned them with glory and honor. You have given them dominion over the works of your hands. O Lord, our Sovereign, how majestic is your name in all the earth!
1: Dr. Spiegel, it strikes me that even atheists sometimes complain to anyone up there who may be listening, even while thinking that there isn't anybody, probably. And even atheists sometimes feel grateful toward the universe in general which doesn't make a lot of sense since the universe probably isn't a living thing that can receive your thanks. But anyway, just in case somebody's there, they, they feel a general gratefulness shooting out of themselves. Do you think that that's true, that atheists do the same kind of complaining and thanking? And if so, what would you make of the fact?
0: Yeah, I think we're all familiar with atheist complaints. And many times, at least among the more prominent atheists in public life, they take the form of um, kind of outrage about horrible things that happen in this world, and, you know, this the state of our planet, you know, in terms of the rampant uh, wickedness and hunger, and sex trafficking, and injustices of all sorts of kinds, birth defects, cancers, and and so on. And uh, even though they're directed at the rest of us, and many times they would say that, "Well, I'm just." reporting or explaining why it's so foolish to believe in god you know if there is that census divinitatis and it's still alive in them as it is in at least in nearly everyone you could take that as a kind of implicit complaint to god
1: so then these would be natural responses
0: yeah an impulse to do what the psalmist is recommending that we all do from time to time, that they find irresistible even though they uh, at least consciously deny the reality of God. But I think this is something that's so basic to us as fallen beings, you know, to cry out to God, to make our complaints, just like it's also very fundamental that we should give thanks to God. Because we owe God and our, lo- our very lives and every moment of well-being and blessing that we have. I think these two things are just absolutely fundamental and actually crucial for psychological health. And to the extent that you stop becoming or demonstrating gratefulness and you stop issuing such complaints, I think there's something in you that dies or becomes warped. So to the extent that atheists still express a certain gratitude to say the universe or however they put it and still complain about the state of things, I think that's healthy <laughs> insofar as they're doing it, but then often it's, you know, misdirected and fruitless because they're not acknowledging the, the reality of God. Dr Spiegel how
1: is believing that you have a right to complain to God and the privilege of thanking God positively affected your own life
0: Well I think it's a source of psychological release and psychological studies have shown that people who can vent their anger and other negative emotions in a healthy productive way you know tend to experience more joy and they're they're, they're better adjusted and this is a very constructive way to vent uh, is to cry out to God. And it's I find it very satisfying and it brings me peace. It reinforces the joy in my life when I can give thanks to the one who is responsible for the myriad blessings in my life and who's rescued me from trouble and given me a wonderful family and friends and job. And it's literally it feels like no end to the things I can thank God for. That's, it's just fundamentally satisfying and uh, a source of joy. And then, yeah, in terms of venting negative emotions, that too is a source of, I think, more satisfaction. I would call those two things a regular part of my life and Christian devotion daily and in in many times daily in, in when it comes to expressing gratitude to God. And then more occasional when it comes to complaining. And often those complaints take the form of kind of a plea. You know, why, God, aren't you doing something here like the psalmist? Rouse yourself and save us. You know, do something in this situation. Right. Help my friend who's, look how faithful they've been. And and then this really nasty thing has happened to them. You know, why aren't you bringing justice here? That sort of thing.
1: Dr. Spiegel, thanks for talking with us.
0: Well, thank you for having me. I've I've very much enjoyed it.
1: This week's Thinking Music has been Golden by Little Glass Men. You can hear this whole track or download it at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org. Do you enjoy listening to the Trinity's podcast? There are four ways you can show us some love in return. First, share the blog post for this episode on whatever social media you use, such as Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, or Google+. Second, you can leave us a rating and a brief review in the iTunes Store and at Stitcher. Third, you can donate to the cause by clicking the orange Donate buttons to the right of any blog post. Fourth, you can send us some brief, to-the-point audio feedback for possible incorporation into a future episode. We would love to hear your question or your comment in your voice. The upload link for your audio file is on the blog post for any episode. To sum up, you can share, rate, donate, and talk back.
2: Thanks
0: for listening.